Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Earlier this legislative session, Representative Tyler Clancy, Republican for Provo, proposed moving the Utah State Hospital. He said, according to the Salt Lake Tribune, the crucial point for me is that right now jails and prisons are our number one mental health provider. Let's change that. Let's make sure people get the care we deserve. Disability Law Center, Mental Health uh, America of Utah, and others opposed a similar proposal during the 2023 legislative session. Now Representative Clancy's substitute bill, approved unanimously by, le- by legislators at a House Judiciary Committee hearing uh, yesterday, cuts all mention of the state hospital's proposed sale. Instead, the substitute includes a new provision requiring the Utah Substance Utah and Mental Health Advisory Council to study issues with civil commitment process by which someone with severe mental illness is court-ordered to treatment. So today we're going to talk with Representative Clancy about mental health issues, homelessness, and other issues. Representative Clancy, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me. Uh, so a little later in the program, I want to get into your very interesting bio. Um, come from South Carolina, right? Came to BYU. Um, and I believe currently work in law enforcement. That's right. My dad was a Marine out on Paris Island, um, so grew up grew up there in South Carolina, and then came to BYU, played lacrosse, and then uh, after a couple years in the nonprofit sector, I switched over to uh, to your point where I currently work uh, as a police officer in Provo City. Of course, our legislature is a part-time legislature, right? So we all have uh, occupations. Here's law enforcement. Um so uh, I want to jump right in here. Um, before we get into uh, where this bill has ended up, um, issues with civil commitment, uh, definitely very important issues there. I want to talk about what um, what your impulse was uh, uh, with the original bill, um, that we should at least study moving the Utah State Hospital. Was it uh, was it the resources? This is pretty rich land, right? That it could get a high price, maybe. Was it the resources that then could be distributed for mental health? What what was the reason you were looking into this? Well, that's right, Tom. I I know this never happens with politicians that we have a good idea and then uh, it turns out to be reality is a little different. <laughs> um, but we studied. Um, I, I led a task force over the interim about uh, mental health resources and our capacity. And the bottom line from advocates was that, well, of course, we need to broaden civil commitment. Of course, we need more inpatient facilities. We just don't have the bed space. Um, Industry standard is 30 beds per 10,000 people. Right now, we're around uh, 10 beds per 10,000 people. And so to your point, one of the things is, is obviously it's going to take some significant investment to get to where we need to be. Um, I had seen the proposal about the, the state hospital piece and kind of earmarking that money for mental health resources and thought it could be, you know, a creative way that we can work, work that funding in there without um, putting that significant burden on the taxpayer. Um, when I published the bill, the, the feedback really wasn't so much that it's a terrible idea and it should never be discussed, but more just we, we need more time if that's going to be something that we're going to do. And so... Um, if you look at the original bill and the bill I have now, all of the other pieces were still in. So about the um, clarifying the civil commitment law and expanding our um, emergency and voluntary commitment piece to, to get kind of to the middle of the pack. So what we did is we just, we just struck the language about the state hospital and moved forward with our, our, uh, our piece about expanding the tools for mental health professionals. 
so that piece about uh, selling the state hospital, is is that still potentially on the table for next session? Is the, You say it wasn't rejected out of hand so much as we need to study this. You know, there's so many stakeholders that play in that. That's not really my focus. My focus was is more about just capacity in general, not that specific piece. So for me, I'm more focused on the behavioral health response, um, and I'll let uh, brighter minds than myself figure all that out. Uh, so do, do we, I guess there is concern that we have uh, the funding for, for all of these services. Do it, is that a concern going forward? Yep, uh, it absolutely is. We, uh, in, in committee yesterday, the Disability Law Center, who supported that substitute bill uh, for House Bill 299, um, they, they share the same opinion as me, which is a yes and. Yes, we need to expand our, our code to make sure that we're reaching these individuals who need care. But we're also going to need those wraparound resources to make sure that we can, you know, effectively uh, serve those people who who desperately need our help. Um, so uh, I want to read this quote again. Uh, it's quoted in Salt Lake Tribune uh, earlier in the session. That you say the crucial point for me is that right now jails and prisons are our number one mental health provider. And I think we, you know, we have a vague understanding. We we agree with you, right? Uh, that. Uh, and that's yeah. not where we should be. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Absolutely. I mean, listen, we have um, one of the things that was interesting, too, in a bill about mental health. Um, we had prosecutors and defense attorneys testify in support, saying that this is needed, saying that, you know, we, we have a revolving door in our criminal justice system for individuals who, because of their severe and persistent mental illness, they're unable to prohibit behavior that, uh, it's criminal, whether it's disorderly conduct or theft or assault on our streets. And so, you know, they're, they're kind of in and out of this revolving door when really what they need is clinical treatment. They need to be, you know, of course, they need to be separated from society if they're causing a danger to the public. But to be locked in a cage, you know, um, that's not going to help someone heal. And so it's just, a t- it's just a matter of time before that person gets out and they're going to reoffend. That doesn't serve anyone. Um, it doesn't serve our public, and it doesn't serve our individuals who are experiencing those challenges. And so that's really the core of the issue. Are you seeing this in your service, in law enforcement? Without a doubt. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not uh, an expert on the why of what's, what's causing, you know, some of these challenges in people's lives. But I can tell you that in a police officer in the state of Utah – I would say maybe 40% of all the calls for service, the emergency calls for service that you're going to go to or the people you interact with are going to be in a, in a crisis. It might be an acute mental health crisis where it's maybe not that long-term, but I can't tell you how many times you sit with someone on the side of the road and trying to figure out, you know, where, where does this person go? What's next in their story? And really, as, as cops um, and firefighters, we're just, we're just kind of there at the, at the crux point, and we can be that triage. We know we're not the professionals, um, and I think what, what we're trying to do here on Capitol Hill is just give back uh, to the first responders that are out there uh, dealing with those, with those challenges. Uh, so tell me about uh, House Bill 299 as it stands now, the, the specifically maybe uh, talk now about the uh, civil commitment uh, statute, clarifying that statute. Sure. Well, I'll give you two pieces. The first is... Uh, you may have heard this. I, I believe it was discussed on uh, State Street podcast a couple weeks ago, but um, every state has something called a pink sheet. 
and it's an emergency involuntary commitment to a hospital. So this is a MCOT or a police officer who responds out to an emergency or is dealing with someone where because of a mental illness or because of mental health crisis, they are in imminent danger to themselves or others. So a homicidal or a suicidal tendency. In lieu of jail, you can bring them and commit them to the hospital, you know, obviously to get resources. The state of Utah currently is at the bottom of the pack when it comes to um, our ability to, to hold people in those uh, involuntary holds. We're at 24 hours is our maximum. Um, House Bill 299 shifts that to 72 hours, which is right in the middle of the pack if you look um, state by state. This allows medical professionals more time to triage that individual, more time to, to form an exit plan to more long-term services or maybe an inpatient piece. And so we think that it's, it's an essential uh, piece of the puzzle there. You mentioned civil commitment. What we're doing is clarifying two pieces of our civil commitment code in 299. The first is uh, building on the gravely disabled statute. And what we're saying is if someone presents uh, because of a severe and persistent mental illness, an inability to care for their basic human needs. So I want you to visualize, you know, I know you're up in Cache County, so imagine, you know, an individual who's experiencing a mental health crisis and maybe sitting out there near Utah State in their underwear, you know, uh, talking about some sort of conspiracy or something like that in the middle of a snowstorm. This person is, in, is maybe not imminent danger to themselves in that sense, but clearly they're going to continue to deteriorate, which is what our case law asks us to, uh, to look at for civil commitment. So we're looking at that. The other piece is um, back to the original point that we, we spoke about, which is because of a severe and persistent mental illness, they're unable to prohibit themselves from serious criminal justice involvement, which would mean 10, felony, 10 pending felony cases within a period of five years, which uh, is not uncommon for some of these individuals who are dealing with these challenges. And so it's not about judgment. It's not about looking down on those individuals who, for, what, for this or that reason, are dealing with these challenges. Rather, we want to make sure that they get the help they need. Um, understand that um, uh, under your proposal that a person being discharged from, uh, from treatment, uh, you, you, they'd be given a safety plan, resources uh, moving forward. That's exactly right. Um, advocates, as we work in this space, um, this was kind of the resounding message we got, was that if we're going to expand commitment, if we're going to expand our you know, involuntary holds, we need to equally expand protections and, and those guardrails. This is just one piece of those guardrails and those protections for individuals who are committed. So in this discharge packet, really what we're doing is codifying an uh, best practices. So we want to make sure that we're not discharging people back into homelessness. We want to make sure that people have uh, some resources, some uh, a copy of their case report of why they were committed in the first place, making sure that people have have still have that dignity, still you know keeping their rights intact, but also making sure that they have a plan um, when they exit. I also understand the change would be of a, a person discharged from uh, from care. Um, the patient's primary care provider be notified and the law enforcement officer who committed them would be notified. 
That's right. That's the notification piece is specifically for the pink sheets of the emergency holds. So the reason for that is that this is a short turnaround. So if someone um, was committed for suicidal or homicidal tendencies, and then, you know, they're out within 24, 48 hours, whatever the, whatever the issue is, we want to make sure that there's a public safety is aware and that, um, they can continue to monitor and help hopefully get that person wraparound services so they don't go back into that crisis situation. So that, so the notification piece is not, not for the civil commitment uh, portion, but only for the emergency temporary hold, also known as the pink sheet. As you pointed out, we do discharge a lot of people from the state hospital uh, and probably other care centers as well into homelessness. Uh, this is all designed to maybe reduce that? That's exactly right. We want to really help people build off-ramps and uh, reach the next level of human dignity, whatever that is. You know, someone who has been living unsheltered homelessness and maybe been smoking meth, maybe has some compounding mental health factors, um, maybe they're not going to go work at the new Texas Instruments factory or, or Silicon Slopes. And I think sometimes we, we, we measure success with, with just that. But what we want is to make sure that whatever that next level of dignity is, whatever that next level of self-sufficiency is, that we help people get there. And we don't, you know, we don't judge them for, for the place that they're at. We try and meet people where they are and uh, help, them, help them get a little bit, uh, little bit higher on the American dream. And so I think it's, uh, I think it's long overdue. Uh, so, uh, looping back to your your statement that that um, right now jails and prisons are our number one mental health provider, uh, you know, pulling back a, a larger view, what would a, a better system look like? What are some of the other elements of a of a better system? That's a great point. I think a lot of people, when they talk about how to how to balance, um, you know, mental health crisis response and law enforcement and public safety. A lot of people look at Miami. Um, Miami is the pioneer of something called the sequential intercept model, which you, you may have may have uh, talked about on your show prior to this. The sequential intercept model is really a broad, looking at public safety through a broad lens. And obviously, public safety is first, right? I think some of the criticisms of JRI is that we reduce penalties, but we didn't increase services. The sequential intercept model really is saying, you know, we're going to hold criminals accountable, period. But if someone is a criminal because of a severe and persistent mental illness, well, really what's going to change public safety for the long term, that long arc, isn't keeping that person in society and just trying to look the other way as they continue to commit crimes, but rather to take that person to a place where um, they will be separated for a time while they're in that crisis state but they're going to receive treatment and hopefully get better so that they can function in society. So uh, a lot of people talk about the Miami model, the sequential intercept model. One key function of that is they actually have a place uh, for people to go. And so it's, it's in lieu of jail where um, they have really a, a full, a full functioning piece. So they have police officers that are meant, trained on mental health. They have judges, they have advocates, and they have uh, clinicians, and so they can bring them to this behavioral health response facility to get triage and, and to see, you know, what's really going to keep people safe in the long run, both the individuals in crisis and the public. 
course, in many cases here, we're talking about families, entire families who are, you know, in, in crisis or in distress because of a family member's mental illness. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. Um, what's what's the family member's role in all this, do you think? You know, you hit the nail on the head. I, I've, I've been there both as an elected official on the receiving end of a phone call to talk about can you what what's what's what are those resources for my sons? But then also as a first responder, I've been at the home at two o'clock in the morning when the you know the family saying please just take my son to jail if that's what it takes. And you know there's no there's no criminal charges even if you took someone to jail on a misdemeanor it would be you know a couple hours before they're out. And so I believe there's a missing piece that families to your point families are really hoping for which is somewhere where we can meet people where they are in crisis. And I'll tell you, um, I can only speak on behalf of Utah County, uh, where I live, but Wasatch Behavioral Health does a great job, and they're trying uh, new approaches every year to try and make it happen. One of the things that we have, and I think we'll continue to build upon in the model, it's called the Receiving Center, and it's a 24-7 facility. It's not a lockdown facility. But this is where you could go and you could bring someone as a first responder or as a family member um, who's experiencing crisis. And they have clinicians there staffed around the clock to make sure that uh, people are seen, people have someone to talk to, or there's some uh, a clinical aspect. There's, there's medication there as well. So I think, it's a, I think it's a great first step, and I think we'll continue to build in that direction. But you're exactly right that families are the ones saying, what can we do? You know, I'm not tied to a specific solution, but we need something. And then I go back to thinking about your professional law enforcement. That's just one more thing, right? It's a stressful, <laughs> it's a stressful occupation, but uh, th- that must just tear at your heart. Some of these situations, without a doubt. I mean, it's uh, you know, I think sometimes as, and I, I, I think of too. I mean. I know when we, th- when we say first responders, we, we think of police, fire, EMS. But I also think of doctors in the emergency room. I think of those crisis workers at the uh, Safe UT. I think of teachers, people who are on the front lines and see the trauma, right, uh, whatever that looks like and whatever the blend is there. I think when you speak with people who see those uh, instances of trauma, that's where the passion comes from. And I think I think if broadly, if you spoke to people within those groups and people who maybe had a family member dealing with this, I don't think they're going to come to you and say, you know, Tom, we want X, Y, and Z solution. I think what they will say is I, I think we're going to need to get creative. We're going to think outside of the box. We're dealing with a with challenge that, you know, prior generations of Utahns haven't seen to this scale. So we're going to need to think big and we're going to need to think different. But ultimately, we need to make sure that when you're sitting with someone in that moment, that there's options, that there's options on the table to make sure that we can help, help that person get to the other side of this challenge, however long that takes. I want to head toward a brief break. When we come back, I want to talk about homelessness and some other issues. Uh, but Representative Clancy, any, any other uh, bills you're running on, on this general area, mental health, or anything else you'd like to say about this topic? Well, House Bill 298 uh, focuses more on homeless services, which I'm happy to talk to after the break, and I think there's a lot of overlap there. All right, sounds good. Uh, On the program today, we are talking with Representative Tyler Clancy. He's a Republican from Provo. Um, His day job is law enforcement, 
and he's uh, been dealing a lot with issues of uh, mental health and uh, homelessness, uh, other issues that he's interested in, uh, in helping with. And uh, we're talking with him uh, for the hour today. Uh, you're listening to Access Utah, and more follows this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour is Representative Tyler Clancy, Republican from uh, Provo. His day job is law enforcement. Uh, been in the legislature, what, representative, a couple of years, year or two? This is year two. Year two, yep. yeah. Um, and um, so I uh, understand we want to talk about homelessness. So I um, understand you got involved in uh, trying to find some uh, solutions in this issue uh, while you were a student at BYU, this before before law enforcement, before the legislature. Uh, am I correct there? I was reading some uh, some bio from you. <laughs> the, the rumors are true. No, I, I was uh, um, a l- right during the the pandemic, um, I was hired as the executive director of the Pioneer Park Coalition, which is now called Solutions Utah. And uh, we worked you know, statewide uh, trying to trying to untangle the issues of mental health, public safety, and homelessness. Uh, so there is a connection, right? Uh, you were saying before the break. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. I mean, there is a number of reasons why individuals become homeless. I mean, domestic violence, uh, economic hardship, you know, with with rent prices and housing prices increasing. But there's also a unique segment of of homelessness, uh, usually in the unsheltered population. And these are individuals who are experiencing um, more, I would say, more severe challenges and more complex challenges than maybe economic hardship or or others and that's really where the mental health piece comes into play and then there's also usually um because of the brutal nature of of living in homeless encampments there's a lot of drug use too and drug addiction and so it's a i would say it's a a tapestry of trauma if you will and there's really when we say homelessness we're talking about a big umbrella um i was interested uh i pulled up a a op-ed piece you did for utah policy daily it's back in 21 and um, you you quote uh, someone working on this issue in Austin, Texas. Alan Graham is his name. I was interested here. Uh, he says homelessness is a profound catastrophic loss of family. That really struck me. Obviously, it struck you, too. You put it in bold in this op-ed piece. That's right. I had the opportunity uh, to visit Community First in Austin, which is a... Uh, uh, some call it a tiny home or a, or a modified shelter community for homeless individuals in Austin, Texas. And I got to meet uh, Alan. And really what he talks about is that, um, and, he, and he really speaks broadly, but I think for purposes of our conversation to, to zero in on homelessness, is that many times individuals who are homeless, and specifically unsheltered homeless, they feel like a failure. And they've tried many, many times to, to put their lives back together and, and come up short. And so a lot of people give up, and, 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 and the system is super hard on them. And so what I think is going to be an essential piece, and I think you'll see it reflected in House Bill 298, is helping, helping uh, build back people's dignity and self-efficacy. I think for a long time, when people are, are in these situations, they start to think that, that they are a failure, Right. And that's a, that's a destructive to, to humans, and it's destructive to our community. And so we want to make sure that we 
um, as we help people move along the continuum of care, we can help them increase their human dignity uh, one step at a time. Uh, so you've had perspective on this uh, from Pioneer Park Coalition. Also, I imagine uh, in law enforcement. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. That's right. I, I, I do come in contact with a lot of individuals experiencing homelessness on any given time. And um, I think, uh, you know, when you build relationships of trust and, and you can hear people's stories, no no two stories are, are the same, right? And I think our policies need to reflect that. Um, House Bill 298 uh, asks us to go a little further in our data. Right now, the state of Utah, the data we collect about homelessness is really governed by uh, HUD, so the Department of Housing and Urban Development on the federal level. Um, in 2021, there was an audit from the Office of Legislators Audit uh, Office and um, asked us to dive in deeper on the data. House Bill 298 really fills in those gaps. So what we're doing is looking at subpopulations. What are those how many individuals are entering the system from, uh, you know, domestic violence or economic hardship? And how many are entering the system from unsheltered homeless? How many people are dealing with mental health challenges or addiction? And so when we dive deeper into those subpopulations, our policies can be more effective as we look at the lived experience and make sure that we're not trying to take a one-size-fits-all solution to a very complex problem. What changes do you feel uh, need to be made to, to Utah's approach so far? Well, you know, this, uh, many solutions have been tried or being tried. What, what do you think is most effective? What changes do we need? Yeah, I mean, it, kind, of, kind of as I said prior, it, it depends what, which population we're talking about. One of the things that we do really well in the state of Utah is um, uh, rapid rehousing. Um, when, when individuals, uh, and some call it transitory homeless or temporary homelessness, when someone misses a rent payment and their family becomes homelessness, uh, be, excuse me, becomes homeless, um, when they're able to get back into housing uh, very quickly, you can mitigate a lot of the uh, compounding factors that make homelessness really challenging for a lifetime. And that's one thing that we do really well is that in the state of Utah, a lot of our individuals who touch or have contact with our service providers, it's very temporary. And so we can help people get back on their feet. Really, the challenge in Utah, and as you look across the country, is how do we deal with individuals? How do we serve individuals who have been homeless for many years, who maybe are addicted to, to heroin or meth, um, and then maybe also have a compounding either mental health challenge or, or serious trauma that needs to be addressed in a clinical setting? That's really the, that's really the I think, the, the challenge as you look across, whether it's San Francisco or King County in Washington, or uh, or Skid Row in Los Angeles, that's really when, when people think of homelessness and the complexity, that's what they're looking at. And so I think it's going to take a bifurcated approach. I think you need people who, who are there, boots on the ground, and meeting people where they are, learning people's names. But I think equally you need effective systems that recognize that, um, that, that addiction and mental health and trauma are, are long. There's, there's very long arcs to, to to solving those challenges, and that's where um, I think we can we can really make some strides. One piece of this um, intersects with our housing crisis, right? Um, there's people who just can't afford the rent anymore, or uh, can't afford the mortgage, or um, you know, uh, seniors who uh, on a fixed income yep. just can't can't afford a house anymore. Um, for example, I've heard the the warming center in Cash uh, County. Um, you know, as they survey there, the users of that warming center 
lot of those folks are in their cars because uh, you know, mm-hmm. just, just can't afford uh, the, their place to live anymore. Uh, how do we address that? Well, one of our one of our leaders in this area is former Senate President Wayne Niederhauser, and Wayne is now the uh, it's in the office Office of Homeless Services. He's the State of Utah Homeless Coordinator. There's a lot of titles, a lot of acronyms, but really he's he's uh, trying to take a broad approach to this. You're exactly right that a dollar doesn't go the, the same way it used to maybe even five, ten years ago, um, whether it's housing costs or groceries. And families are feeling the squeeze uh, now more than ever. What, what we want to do with, uh, and, and I think we, we are working and continuing to, to do well in this area, is we want to make sure that individuals, we can keep them stable where they are, right? So if we can help uh maybe with rent assistance for a brief period of time, a lot of times people can, can bounce back very quickly. Um, and so that's, uh, there's rapid rehousing vouchers and the rental assistance with those service providers. A lot of it, I think, a challenge that is pretty broad, too, is, is a lot of people, um, maybe there's a stigma associated with getting help, um, and, and maybe people wait to get help until it's too un, – until – until maybe they slipped a little farther into a more challenging situation. We want to make sure that we're not stigmatizing help. Uh, we want to make sure that we're not um, uh, deterring people from the services that we invest in and making sure that, that uh, we, we come together and help people as a community. Uh, let's take another break. Uh, we're talking with uh, Tyler Clancy. He is a uh, representative of the Utah House of Representatives, uh, representing, um, I think, northern Provo area into Pleasant Grove. Is that your district? It is in Provo, uh, uh-huh. uh, northeast Provo. Northeast Provo, yeah. Uh, he's a Republican, and um, he is uh, one of the uh, youngest legislators uh, in, the, in, the, in the state, in the nation. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that and public service uh, when we come back. We'll, uh, we'll uh, have more following this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're pleased to have with us Representative Tyler Clancy, Republican from Provo, as our guest uh, for the hour. We've been talking about uh, issues related to mental health and homelessness uh, I want to move on to air quality and some other issues as we move along here um, as well. Uh, so I want to move, uh, Representative Clancy, to air quality. I understand you have a bill. Um, I'll just preface this uh, by saying that uh, reading an article in the Salt Lake Tribune, um, organizers of the Olympics back in uh, when we had them before, um, 2002 I think it was, um, one of the organizers said, you know, regarding air quality, that he really worried about it because there are a lot of a lot of inversion days. But on the opening ceremony, we lucked out. We got a beautiful, glorious, sunny day, and that was broadcast around the world. It could just as easily have been a gunky day in, in Salt Lake. Now we got the twenty the twenty thirty four Olympics uh, coming. Um, so I understand you you have a, a bill to uh, bring the state uh, closer to the International Olympic Committee's demands on air quality. You know, I think uh, Republican, Democrat, Independent, people want to drink clean water and breathe uh, clean air. I don't really think that's a partisan issue. Really, the partisanship gets into play of how do we get there. Um, the the nexus or kind of the genesis of House Bill 279, which you're referencing, 
was um, if we don't do anything, if we don't really set a standard, then the federal government sues us, the EPA sues us, and then we negotiate with uh, the EPA back and forth through the Attorney General's office, and then come, come down to some sort of uh, agreement. 279, what we tried to um, move forward is uh, let's do it the let's do it the Utah way. Let's make sure that we, let's let's set our own standard and get there on our own time. And so I think uh, you know we, we we maybe maybe shot for the moon and, and shot a little too fast, but we are working on some uh, some key components that we think will really help uh, air quality. Um, what, what are some of the components? What, what, what is needed, you think? And, and do we have the political will to do this? Yeah, I think, I, I think to, the, to the political point, I think it all depends on the how. The, the devil's always in the details. Um, what we're looking at with different stakeholders is seeing how we can incentivize, really, American investment. A lot, uh, a lot of people disagree on how we're going to... <laughs> how we're going to clean up our environment. But one thing I think we can all agree on, and another resolution we just passed in the House yesterday was H.R. 5, which uh, identified, you know, we're not going to get our way out of this problem by importing uh, energy from China or Russia um, into countries that don't have any environmental standards. And so we want to build on that clean, affordable, reliable baseline and continue to, to try and get better every day. I want to talk a little bit about uh, public service uh, today. You um, you have been serving, what, a couple of years now, the second year in, in the legislature. Um, one of the youngest in the, in the nation. I think you're 27, is it? 20, yeah, 27 as of Monday. So yeah. getting, getting to the old, getting up there. So <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing this was, uh, did you have this in mind? At some point you'd go into public service? You know, what's funny is I, I thought, you know, maybe much later in life that I would uh, step up and try and serve my community if, if the time was right. And um, t- uh, two years ago, in 2022, um, my predecessor, Representative Adam Robertson in Provo, uh, resigned uh, a little bit before the session in, in the winter. And uh, it was one of those moments where I thought, you know, this is a pretty incredible pretty amazing opportunity to to step up and serve for for a time and uh so decided to run in that special election and and uh, was was lucky enough to to come out victorious what's the impulse here i i could guess maybe your dad in law enforcement uh, maybe you know serving in a, in a public capacity might be a influence there what are some influences that led you to this well you you hit the nail on the head definitely a come from a family of, of public service. My father was a police officer. My mom is a, is a school teacher. So always, you know, seeing how you can, how you can better your community. I will say, you know, more, I guess, uh, more direct is just seeing the unique challenges that were presented um, over the past several years, you know, from, from homelessness to public safety to the pandemic response. And, and I'm a big believer that, um, you can either complain about the problem or you can do something. And so my wife kind of gave me an ultimatum and she said, well, you, can, you know, you can either stop complaining or you need to step up and, and uh, get some new walking shoes and go out there and knock doors and, and go, go try and be the change you want to see. So that's, that's what we tried to do. Uh, 
Yeah, good good advice. <laughs> um, so you so you got involved, and then the, the, this is how you're involved now. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, j- just the the toxic environment in politics in general, especially on the national level. I, I think it's a little better here in Utah. Uh, for example, Congress just can't get anything done. That's because for many members of Congress, uh, it's more about performance and uh, and their their own profile. This is my characterization. Um, and uh, compromise a dirty word, right? And uh, working across the aisle is a sin. Um, what's it like uh, in the Utah legislature? Well, you are you are 100% correct. And, and I'll tell you, um, Republican or Democrat, if you're looking to get into public service, um, there's a quote from, I believe it was Harry Truman, that said, it's incredible what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. And if you're in it for the right reasons and you're really – uh, approach issues in good faith, you will find common ground. Um, now, that doesn't mean you don't stand up for your principles, obviously. And there are times when maybe maybe compromise is not the right the right path forward. And I'm, I'll never tell anyone to compromise on their values. But I will say that in a professional setting, whether you're a police officer, whether you're, a, you know, working at a restaurant as a cook, you have to work with people, right? And there's, there's systems and, and you want to be a good... Uh, partner to work with. So approaching things in good faith, honesty and transparency, those are all qualities that go a long way in making sure that you're doing the core function, which is working on behalf of the people at home that you're representing, right? I mean, not many people, of course, you have hyper-partisan people that say, I want you to go there and, you know, go to war with the other side. But most people just want to live in a safe community, want to go to church and want to go to work without, you know, uh, you know, too many challenges and, and just and, and, and live, in the, live their life. And, and I think people want you to go out and serve them with, with dignity and, and respect. Uh, it seems to me that uh, Democrats and Republicans have uh, generally gotten along pretty well, the Utah legislature. Um, I've also observed this session, uh, DEI, transgender issues specifically, um, it seems to be fraying at the patience of, of some of the Democrats uh, in, in terms of, hey, can we continue to work with Republicans? Uh, are you seeing any change there? Are, are people getting along, getting things done? Well, I can't speak on behalf of, of uh, the Democrats. But what I can tell you is that there are there's conversations that, that go on behind closed doors, and I don't mean that in like a lack of transparency way. I just mean more of a human-to-human rather than a policy political discussions that, uh, you know, and you know what, of course there's division. You know, when we talk about these big issues that absolutely there's going to be diverging opinions and, and the gravity of those issues, they bring really strong opinions. But I'll tell you, um, that's also life, right? I mean, if you work in the environment at home, if someone's listening to this on their way to work, you're going to disagree with with your coworkers. And um, I think what you you can do so in a respectful way and and seek first to listen and then speak. You know that my dad always said the two ears one mouth rule, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, I think if you do that and you treat people with respect, you let the chips fall where they may. Um, I think you can. I think adults can can move on and continue to work on where there is common ground. Right. So I'm not saying that that. If someone's in the minority party, they need to not stand up with their what, for what they believe in. I, that's totally not what I'm saying. But I am saying that I think uh, you, 
in every work environment, wherever you are, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be disagreement. It's what you do after that that really counts. What would you say to folks who maybe are looking to get involved, you know, not, not interested in an elective office, uh, I guess maybe follow your wife's advice, go knock on doors, get, in, get involved that way? How, 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 how best to get involved? Right. I would, say two, I would say two things. The first is that your voice does matter. A lot of people think, well, you know, I can't. I, I, maybe, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I don't know enough. Well, obviously, you know, do your due diligence and, and be educated about the issues that you want to represent people on, whether it's at the municipal or county or state level. Um, but, but whatever your experience is, it's important, and we need all perspectives. The second thing I would say is the most effective way to, I think, engage people is to meet people where they are. You know, I had a stump speech prepared when I started the campaign and start to tell people and Really, what I found was the most effective was to was to listen and to hear stories from families about uh, maybe their experience in the criminal justice system, maybe uh, a son or a daughter who had experienced some hardship uh, in their educational career and maybe some obstacles there. I think when you listen, you can learn a lot and you can start to uh, be a better representative of your community. Just about reached the end of our time here. Uh, any other pieces of legislation you want to mention, or anything else you want to mention here at the end? Well, you 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 hit on the two most important bills to me, which is two ninety eight and two ninety nine. But really, what I'd say is that for anyone listening, um, you you'd be surprised how accessible your representatives are. Um, maybe not during the session because of the frantic nature of such, but I definitely can say throughout the year, if there is an issue that you're you're curious about or interested or want to get involved in, um, just, just, you know, just go for it. The, the 70% of success in life is just showing up. And so I think being engaged and being involved can go a long way. We've been talking with Representative Tyler Clancy, Republican from uh, Provo, talking about uh, mental health issues, homelessness, and other issues. Uh, thank you so much, Representative. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Tom. Thank you for the opportunity.